0: So a bit of background about the Gospel of Mark, just as a reminder, the Gospel of Mark is written by Mark and he's writing to predominantly a Gentile church who's under the rule of Nero. And even as we looked at last time, we saw that Nero, he was a tyrant, a, a wicked ruler. Within this passage, we also see that Jesus is opposed by Different groups of persons, but persons who also group together to oppose Jesus, such as the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees, and also the Herodians. Alright? So, some things are some issues that they had with Jesus, as we see throughout the Gospel of Mark. One, they sought to destroy Jesus' ministry and also to destroy him physically. So, asking Jesus questions like, why does he eat with sinners? Or why does his disciples pick like, grain upon the Sabbath? Or even in compar- compare them to John's disciples and ask them, why doesn't like, his disciples fast like John's? And then we finally see in Mark chapter 3 verse 6 that they come together and they decide, well, hey, like, we are going to destroy Jesus. So, this actually leads us to, leads me to the first point in this portion of Scripture. So, in verse 28, we see that one of the scribes came up and he heard the dispute that was actually happening. So, the first point is, believer, approach your unbelieving neighbor with the expectancy that today they might believe. In Mark chapter 3, in Mark chapter 12 verse 28, we see a dispute with the Sadducee that's actually coming to an end. And we see a new conversation and a possible dispute of the scribe coming, asking a question of Jesus, like, what is the greatest command? Just a, a bit of reminder we see that this is actually the third conversation that Jesus is having for the day. So the first one was upon what I preached upon last, which was should the Jews give to Caesar? The second one was the issue of resurrection that the Sadducees had. And the final one is this question that we are at is what is the greatest command? So, two points here we can see and we can note based upon Jesus' response. The Pharisees, the scribes, the Herodians, and the Sadducees, this grouping of persons plotted to destroy Jesus' ministry and also to, to kill him. And they did this prior to this day, and they also did this on this particular day. So they were constantly trying to remove Jesus. As one who was in authority. So, therefore, it isn't far-fetched for us to think that this scribe coming asking this question wasn't a genuine question, but it was a question to try to trap Jesus. Right? However, the scribe posed the question: which commandment is most important of all? And Jesus responded according to Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 4 and then summing up the 10 commandments which we will get to later on. We as Christians would disagree in principle but could possibly relate if Jesus' response was to either ignore this question or to answer this quite harshly, Based upon the fact that he was coming from a group who constantly opposed Jesus and sought his destruction. Yet, this is not how Jesus responded. He answered him, referencing quite a familiar passage in the Old Testament that was quite familiar to the Jews, Deuteronomy in Deuteronomy chapter um, 6, and then he answered him openly and honestly, stating that he should love God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love his neighbor even as he loved himself. So even afterwards, Jesus saw that this scribe, he responded properly or rightly. And Jesus sought to give some sort of encouragement to this scribe, stating that he wasn't far from the kingdom of God. So we all have possibly had some type of opposition from unbelievers within our spirits. Whether, whether it basically based upon either a gospel proclamation or even our profession of faith. Whether it be like a crude or a nasty joke, blasphemy against God and Christ's work upon the cross, or even try to like undermine your intellect or belittle your faith. So, is it is something that most persons would be used to. Right? But, how Christ answered this objection should be how what we should apply to our evangelistic efforts in our various spheres. Rather than becoming angry, bitter, seeking to get the last word or responding in like a borderline, insulting way towards those who oppose Christ, we should humble ourselves and begin each conversation not in ignorance of previous conversations, but we should begin it with a calm mind and a heart prayer for those who oppose Christ that God would grant them repentance. If God does not delight in the death of the wicked, neither should we. We do not know at which point God will save the sinner. We don't know at which point God will grant repentance. So even if you approach a believer in your spirit and they are you know constantly against the gospel constantly against christ we should have the expectancy that one day god may save him or her even if it means that you are the stock of your workplace our community or whatever spirit you are in don't let previous conversations with listeners are groups who normally reject the gospel make you nasty as you present the gospel in the future. Loving your neighbor is shown in multi- multiple ways within throughout this scripture. Yet one of the clearest ways that we love our neighbors is by proclaiming the gospel and praying for the hearts of those persons that they may come to know Christ. However. And like Christ, we fail at keeping God's commands, whether it be loving our neighbor or loving God, even though we know we ought to do so. And this brings, us to, brings me to the second point. All men know God's law. Jesus' answer towards what is the greatest commandment is broken down into a clear statement of first, of who God is, and then a the sum of the Ten Commandments. God is to be loved with all our hearts, soul, mind, and strength, or to put it simply, God is to be loved with our total self. Jesus' statement here points out our obligation to God, which spans the first four commandments, then our obligation to our neighbor, which spans the last six commandments. However, In our day and age, there are many false views pertaining to the law of God which sometimes come from persons who profess Christianity or it comes from the average non-Christian. I am sure many persons have been told before that Christians shouldn't force their way or force how they live, meaning the law of God, upon persons who are not Christians, persons who are, are not believers, are not followers, of Jehovah, yet, like this is a wrong view, in the sense that all persons are expected to live under the law of God, and all persons will be judged by God. Whether it be a Muslim who was raised under the influence of Allah, and who believed and Allah, that person will be judged by God. Whether it be a person who has spent all their life rejecting the gospel, they too will also be judged by God. Or even if it's a person who brought up in a remote location who has never heard the gospel, this person will also be judged by God. And you might think, well, this seems unfair. If this person has never heard the gospel, how could God judge them by his law? And the reality is, all persons have the law of God written upon their heart. Romans chapter 2, I read from 12 just to 15, it says, For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. is written upon written on their hearts, while their conscience bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. All persons have God's law written upon their hearts. Therefore, nobody is without excuse. To even drive on the point further, if you were to go to the rainforest, the Brazilian rainforest, and we were to go among a tribe of persons who have never read the Bible, they have never heard about Christianity, we would find that these persons, they don't praise the person who steals from the other tribesmen. They don't praise the one who seeks to murder other tribesmen. Like, they would hold them accountable. And they do this because God's law is written upon their hearts. Loving God looks like having no other God before Him, or not misusing His name. If we love our neighbor, we shouldn't seek to kill or steal or to commit adultery. The reality, however, is we do not love God perfectly. Who person can really say that I have loved God with all my heart, soul, strength, and mind? We also don't keep our obligation to our neighbor since we lie and we steal. Indeed, we are all lawbreakers. All lawbreakers are rightly deserving of death. Even as the Bible says, the wages of sin is death. And when we think about wages, we think about something that our work, our hands, have earned us as we have worked. In a similar way, our works, works, which are sinful, are deserving of the price of death. Yet, there is good news. Christ came for sinners. God loves sinners first, and this has never been the opposite way. For a sinner loves sin, and he's a horse of God who shines his light upon his unrighteousness and his evil. Jesus Christ, through his atoning work on the cross, has freed guilty from being slaves to sin. Therefore, I will clean up my life and come to Christ is actually an impossible task, since it is God who cleans you and enables you to come to Christ. So to the Sprite who agreed with Christ that the greatest on what the greatest commandment was we should consider two conclusions about this sprite's salvation. And commentators basically differ upon whether he was saved or or not. So one school of thought believed that he was possibly saved in the future. Uh, Based upon the fact that Jesus said, well, you are not too far from the kingdom of God. However, there's the opposite view is that he wasn't saved and he was much like the rich young ruler who knew what he ought to do, he knew the religion well, but he actually didn't commit. Uh, For me, I I think I would probably believe the, the first because at the end of the day, from the, the latter conclusion was that because also we haven't heard about the scribe um, with Jesus or possibly, but among the apostles, he possibly didn't commit himself to Christ yet, like not hearing about him necessarily does not exclude him from possibly being saved in the future. Right? But it's not thought that I would die on it, just share my thoughts. However, what they do agree on was at this point that this friend he was actually an unbeliever. So my first point looked at it from the person who is proclaiming the gospel point of view. How we should have an expectancy that this person could actually become a believer. Therefore, we should share the gospel with that type of expectancy. This second point would speak towards those who are outside of the faith, or those who, are, who have heard the gospel but have not committed themselves to Christ. Let this scribe who was in the presence of persons who opposed Christ and sought their destruction there are many who have a wrong view of Christ. Whether it be Muslim, Catholic, Jehovah Jehovah Witness, Mormons who are not Christians, this could also mean persons who have heard the gospel but have yet a a secular worldview. Yet, despite the rejection of the gospel from those around you, and possibly you, you have heard about Christ, even if the first time is today. The evidence of God is undeniable. Plus, deep down inside, according to Romans, we know that unbelievers suppress the truth in unrighteousness. What I want to tell you is, don't. Despite rejection, from family or friends or whoever is in your sphere, come to Jesus. In Mark chapter 10, verse 29, Jesus responds to Peter saying, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brother, or sisters or mother, or father, or children, or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundred now in the time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecution, and in the age to come eternal life. Notice that a call to follow Christ bids you to leave that thing which you might be in opposition to Christ, which your own nature love and enjoy and delighted in you will have brothers and sisters from different nations from different areas within the world uh, and a believer could be traveling and be on an airplane and you know speak to someone who is next to them who they have never met from a totally different country and actually from speaking to them they know if they are a believer in some sort of sense or not like they can be encouraged by this person who they never met. They can see that this person is trusting in the gospel and seeking to live a life that is pleasing to God. All right? However, on a closer knitted end, like God has actually given us brothers and sisters in our local church and who we get to do life with. Therefore, no one is alone, even though they leave a grouping that has constantly opposed Christ. So despite, although he would be leaving this grouping that sought Jesus' destruction and possibly become one who was in the view of those who oppose Jesus to now be persecuted, he was not alone. Likewise, you unbeliever, who know the biblical truths and deep down believe Jesus to be the Savior, come. Only Christ can free you from being a slave slave to sin. So this brings us to the last point, which is a true believer actually longs to love God with their entire being. There are wrong attitudes towards sin and there are right attitudes towards sin. Uh, A right attitude towards sin could possibly look like knowing that you are weak, knowing that you are helpless, knowing that you need to be dependent and reliant upon God's grace daily in all things that you do, even as you fight sin. But a wrong view of God's grace can be that you, Kinda accept the fact that well okay sin. So therefore I I kinda have an excuse. So you don't actually seek to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Or you don't actually seek to love God with your total being. Although sins remain although sin remains in you and you don't keep God's commands perfectly. A believer should seek to actually do so. They should actually seek to delight in the law of God. They should actually seek to find joy and be obedient to God. God has actually freed you from the power of sin. You actually know, have free will to be able to choose that which is good. Plus, you have the Holy Spirit in you empowering you to actually be obedient to God's command. So seeking to love God with your whole being is a delight for those who are truly believers. As David stated in Psalm chapter 1 verse 2, those who don't dwell with the wicked, who hate sinning against God, do such because they delight in God's law. Delighting in God's law is possible at justification, but it is a process that happens as sanctification takes place in your life. Philippians chapter two, verse 12 says, Therefore, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but no more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it's God who works in you to will and to do. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 verse 12. And may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people, just as we also do for you. We grow in our love for God and our love for people. Therefore, dive into the means of grace which God has given you to mature you and to grow in God so that you may delight in his law. But God's work, you are actually able to keep the law of God. So the knowledge of God freeing us from sin, that this knowledge should be upon our hearts each and every day as we fight sin and seek to be obedient to God.